Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I am your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is the 23rd day of January 2014, and this is podcast number 54 for the archives. And as I said before, I am your host and shepherd, Jake Counts, navigating you through this crazy world that we live in. Uh, joining me here in a few moments will be Josh Wiley of the Journalistic Revolution, and um, we're going to get into a bunch of stuff this evening, and, um, and there's going to be some points to the articles that we, we reference, but mainly this, um, this entire show is going to be dedicated to um, two facets. It's going to be dedicated, number one, to um, what is big government, and how does big government typically run amok, I guess would be the best way to describe it. And then at the very end, we want to talk about um, awakenings and, um, you know, obviously things like the non-aggression principle, which I, um, which I actually endorse uh, wholeheartedly. Um, and how do you get to people to think outside of the status quo? So that's what we're going to get into today. And it's going to be a very fun show. Josh is one of my favorite people to talk to. And, um, one of these days, I don't know when it's going to be, but one of these days, he and I will get around to posting some of the the off-air conversations that we have, and um, they typically lead in um, very interesting directions, and and I think it will be uh, beneficial for people that um, that don't know how to do research or have haven't done very little research, I guess, in conspiratology or how the world really works, the, the controllers, if you will, um, to hear two people and how they communicate with one another and, um, and share information and, uh, and then basically digress and, and you know, conflate, not conflate, but I guess cross-reference with other, um, you know, other data points that you've collected over the years. So it's going to be, a, um, it's going to be an interesting conversation to say the least. And um, I think that once we get these things figured out, um, it will be um, it will be one of those. Um, we hit the zeitgeist one time. Unfortunately, um, Skype was not our friend, and it did not um, didn't yield a great recording, so we couldn't use it. So um, anyway, um, I was hopefully I think I got him pulled up here. Josh, are you there, sir? Uh, I should be. How am I coming in? You're coming in great. I just didn't see any videos, so I didn't know if you were able to to pull up video or not. So I, I should be. Linux versus Skype is a, a bit of a headache, though. So. Okay. Well, I mean, um, everybody out there in Radio Land can just see um, or can just hear the audio, so it doesn't really matter. But anyway, um, Josh, I don't know if you heard the introduction, but basically, what I wanted to get into tonight, and I'm going to have to shut down my um, my messenger here. I don't want everybody to hear all my pop-ups. But uh, what I wanted to get into tonight was um, 
was basically, and I think that you saw where I was going with this, what really happens when we give too much power to the state and, and what the typical progressions of, of a massive um, governmental state are. And then on the tail end, I wanted to spend some time talking about um, my awakening and yours. Uh, everybody's heard mine a couple of times, and they, I haven't really heard yours. But I want us both to share our stories about um, traveling with the TSA and your recent travels to um, to um, Arizona and and the things that you discussed. So just kind of setting the, the groundwork for the show and letting people w- know what we're going to get into tonight. So um, once again, thank you for joining us, everybody. That has been the absolute longest setup in the history of radio, so I do apologize for that. But now we're getting ready to... Um, Getting ready to dive into the info. Josh, do you got anything to add before we jump into all this um, this good information here that we got for the for the guests? Uh, just that Arizona is a lot warmer than Michigan, and I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, it's not. Well, I guess they consider it winter out there, but um, I don't know if you would consider it. It's not your winter. We'll just put it that way. Yeah, I don't think a 60 degree lows uh, count as winter anywhere. <laughs> Well, fair enough. So um, the articles that we wanted to get into briefly and then um, discussing statism. Well, let's let's get into that really quickly and set the stage for some of these articles that we're going to cover and um, and how it's really going to feed into what we're trying to discuss here in a, in a broad sense and what I'm trying to get across in a um, in a very, um, I guess, remedial sense with um, with not only the title of my show, We Are Not Cattle, but the overall projection of what um, – of what it means to not be a slave. So let's um, let's dive into first of all, let's dive into a couple of different um, facets of government that get kicked around. Josh, how's that sound? Uh, sounds great. Okay, so let's go with the um, currently. Let's start out with the Democratic Republic, like we have here in America. Now, you and I talked about this the other night, and I think it's or the actually the other afternoon, and I think it's going to be very interesting to to kind of go down this road. Now, Democratic Republic was set up um, basically to to give maximum freedom to the individual, let the individual make the decision on what they wish to barter, trade, um, who they um, wish to associate with, um, freedom of speech, you know, freedom of religion, those types of things. And, and basically they were safeguards to prevent a, a gigantic federal state, which is the exact opposite of what we have now. So... Um, what are your thoughts on a democratic republic, and do you believe that the American democratic republic has been a success, or are we seeing the ends of of what we believed was going to be the the be all end all and the and the way to circumvent the oligarchs? Well, I, I think uh, of course that it's an abject failure, and that's really endemic not of uh, the the American democratic republic, but the idea of democratic republic in general. Sure. Uh, Simply because, you know, as, as the state with the smallest amount of power will ultimately have uh, essentially the, the largest amount of collateral with, with which to steal from its citizenry uh, because you have so much freedom of, of commerce and enterprise and speech uh, that, that the inventiveness of a free people will inherently create more wealth to plunder. Uh, the, the, the staple of a democratic republic is that it requires a vigilant citizenry. And Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Paine, uh, there, there are a lot of brilliant men who wrote at length about uh, how a democratic republic should ideally function. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem with that is that 
you have a centralized body uh, of authority and a monopoly on force. Even Thomas Jefferson, who uh, you know I would consider one of the more ideologically sound founding fathers, even Jefferson went so far as to say that that we shouldn't have a standing army, but but a navy that that's okay, right? Uh, so it's this idea of preserving that that force and 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 putting that gun in the hands of the state, and it'll always come back to bite you in the ass. Well, and I think that that's one thing that we do need to to touch on, uh, actually, and, and to delve into a little bit more. From a democratic republic standpoint, there there has to be one thing in common, and you and you kind of glanced over this, but you you touched on it, and that is that you have to have an informed citizenry. That's that's a rule number one. You have to have a citizenry that is informed, that is um, that is that is vigilant about liberty, that is vigilant about defending each other's um, civil rights. And and that's not what has you know that's not what has transpired and a lot of it has to do with and I and I guess I'm going to challenge your argument that we've had a, a failure here, but a lot of it has to do with the oligarchs and what they've done to the actual um, population and how they've dumbed them down on purpose to become um, something that can be fed upon. So. In in theory, in theory, it looks really good on paper, much like communism looks really good on paper, and that's another one that I wanted to get into as well. Um, they look really good on paper, but the application requires um, two totally different things. Um, from a democratic republic standpoint, you need the application of an informed citizenry that understands that um, that I cannot use force in order to uh, or the power of the state. In order to enforce things that I believe that are, you know, in my scope of or sphere of influence, in order to coerce you into doing anything, whereas that's what we're we're really running into now with this nation state. So, my, I guess my defense of the democratic republic is that it, it probably is a fallacy in the fact that we can't get an informed enough citizenry to respect and understand the individual civil liberties and the non-aggression principle that would go along with supporting something like that also without using the um, the gun of the state as you said before in order to enforce what they believe is a um is a fair system. Yeah, well well I I'll push back on this a little bit. I I might be a little bit of an oddball in the sense that I don't think communism looks good in theory or practice. Okay. Uh, but 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 to your point uh, about the nature of a democratic republic and an, it, it, the necessity of a, an informed citizenry for for it to operate smoothly and effectively, I, I would just posit the point that you know at the time of of the the, the revolution of uh, the inception of this country, we had a 98 percent literacy rate in America. Of course, that doesn't ex- uh, include uh, slaves, indentured servants. Uh, didn't include uh, American Indians at the time, but but of the voting populace, you had a 98% literacy rate, and that you know maintained itself throughout most of uh, America's early history until the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, which I, I suppose is, is is when a lot of these tyrannies originally came to place. But we 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 had the establishment of a central bank in 1812. We had uh, imperialistic wars in the form of, you know, the Barbary Wars and, uh, and a number of other, you know, smaller skirmishes that, that, in my opinion, America shouldn't have even been involved with at the time. So even when you had a, an incredibly informed, uh, intelligent citizenry, and bear in mind, their, their definition of literacy was, was very, very different than, than ours is today. You know, you oh, absolutely. Said, you know, an eighth grader was probably taking a, what would be considered a doctorate class. You know, yeah, a- you know, absolutely. Somebody with somebody with 
what we would consider an eighth grade education would be well more versed, especially since they're being taught the trivium and also in the in you know you and I've talked about this before at nauseum, but also in the in the um, in the one teacher classroom where you would have you know the older students teaching the younger ones and you know and everybody knows that's that's taught taught or dealt with education period is that um, the the way that you really learn is by teaching someone else, which really does push back to the point of of human instincts and, and human and humanity in general is that we should all be teaching one another, but um, we've run into this um, we've run into this cult of um, of um, self um, self idealism, I guess, um, or the the envision that that the self is greater than the whole, and we we typically shut off to anybody trying to teach us anything, or we we shy away from trying to teach anyone anything. Yeah, absolutely. You know, John Locke said that um, human nature. Human nature is essentially that we are property-acquiring animals. So if you view uh, knowledge as property and ideas as, as, as a currency, really, uh, then, then that, it, it totally makes sense in, this, in the sense that hum, humans do strive to, to know more about the world around them in the sense that that is a form of intellectual property, although I don't use that term as it's defined today. Um, but, you know, I, I just... It's... It's something that I, I have struggled with in my uh, ideological kind of revelations over the years with a lot of this information, because for a very, very long time, and I think this is true of a lot of people, you know, uh, Ron Paul was a large uh, part of, of, of my awakening process, per se, mm-hmm. and, and the ideas of, of classical liber- liberalism and libertarianism and, and of, a, you know, a small government that's easily controllable, you know, that you can, uh, was it, I forget who said it, uh, that you, I like my government small enough. Uh, that it can be drowned in a bathtub, right? <laughs> um, but but if you if you look at this idea in practice, uh, it never pans out that way. And we really do have to we have to acknowledge that while while people like Eddie Bernays and Walter Lippmann uh, and and Aldous Huxley and the progression of technology to, mm-hmm. to create distractions for humanity, right. while that is essentially at its peak at the moment, these are these are very very old ideas. You know, Plato talked about the same kind of things with the allegory of the cave, with, sure. with the ability to distract your citizenry uh, into a false reality. Right. So, so long as there are sophists, so long as there are psychopaths, and there, so long as there are people who are willing to deceive other, other people for their own gain, uh, and especially doing so through the monopolization of force known as the state, then we will always have these problems. Right. right. That was leading me. That was leading me into my next point. And and I guess we could always use the logical fallacy of the uh, the no true Scotsman argument with all of these uh, forms of government that there is no real pure you know democratic republic. There's never been a pure democratic republic. There's never been pure communism. There's never been pure socialism. But um, you know one of one of my arguments and and I guess we can. We'll we'll save communism for another com you know for another conversation because it it does take some links to get through and um well actually we can touch on wh- one of the downfalls that I see of communism and you and I talked about this before once again I see it on paper I guess because I'm a very empathetic person of of something that could be a a very bona fide solution if we were all self actualized enlightened people as Immanuel Kant would say. And and then you know moving forward um, with humanity's goal of you know progression and and um, and overall you know intelligence and 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 just taking it to the next level. If we could bonify that, then absolutely communism would possibly work. But what happens is um, when you collectivize things and you put the the extreme power into the hands of the government, 
um, which you and I both know that the government just exists in our minds, and it's not really a, an entity at anything. But once you concentrate power, typically you have, um, like I've played it before with the big toe theory, you have um, people and other entities that run to the levers of power because they're, like you said, they're sophists and they're control freaks, and they want to have, they want to have the levers of power and they want to dominate humanity. And that's my big pushback towards communism. It might work out for the for the ninety eight percent, but what about for the two percent that are that are just ruthless and have no um, and have no real um, have no real empathy for other humans? And I think that that's where the line gets really blurry. And I think that that's also where um, where their um, their argument falls short because you don't have anything to catch. The uh, the two percent of the population that are admitted psychopaths through any kind of psycho- psychological test you want to look at, there's about I think it's um I think it's just under it might be just under five percent that are that are bona fide psychopaths. Well, I, you know, to that point, I, I certainly think that you know it's a very small percentage of the of the population that has clinical psychopathy in the sense that these people have true brain damage. But I think it's a much, much larger portion of the of, of the, the populace at large that has conditioned psychopathy, or at least a, a form of conditioned sociopathy, where these neuro- neurological pathways and, and, and synaptic connections have been unused for so long that they are effectively psychopaths, right? Sure. Uh, that, I, that's, that's part of this conditioning process. Now, that, that we've it, now here's, here's a good question for you. Is it possible to condition... I, I guess this would get into the, um, the psychology of it all, but is it possible, do you believe, to condition a, a human being to be a, a good communist, to be a good um, utilitarian, I guess, for the most part? Well, I, I'm, I'm all but certain that it is because that's exactly what's going on in the world around us today. We are constantly being conditioned to a collectivized communistic uh, e- economic system. But, but to that point, I would also... Saying outside of economics, I'm just saying for utilitarianism, for, for something that would be for the greater good, and, and not having the levers of... Let's say that for some reason we could eliminate the, the 1% that has the ruling oligarchs, if we can get rid of the oligarchs currently, and then start from scratch with the, with the 98% that are left. Do you believe that it's possible through education to, to get us to move to a utilitarian point of view... Um, or do you think that it's going to, um, as um, Mises and other people have said, is it going to be part of human action that will actually lead us to freedom, like the, the free exchange of, of goods and services and the free interaction with individuals? Well, I, I would obviously tend more towards the latter than the former. You know, the problem with uh, conditioning on a massive scale, especially as, as societies become more and more tyrannical, uh, through the nature of that conditioning, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe not even tyrannical, but desire a certain amount of centralized control, whether it be for, for, for the good or, 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 or otherwise, mm-hmm. is that you, you eventually do have uh, dissidents within that system. I know it's a work of fiction, but I think 1984 is an excellent example. While you didn't have an organized rebellion in any form in that society, it's completely controlled, you, you still had, within the, the few cubic centimeters of your mind, you had dissidents, right? You know, you, you, you needed the Ministry of Love because of that dissidence. So, you know, do I believe that humans are stimulus-response animals uh, that can be conditioned to the will of a, a good or a horrible cause in a, in a pure sense? Absolutely not. Uh, I, again, I would tend towards more uh, the human action 
kind of kind of end of the spectrum. And, and get just to touch on that that communistic kind of perspective briefly. Uh, even in a pure egalitarian society, uh, the the fault of communism is that is at the crux of, of of one of Karl Marx's most famous phrases: "To each according to his ability, from each according to his need." Which means that ultimately you have a group of people that will drive the, the progress of society forward, whether they be engineers or, or agriculturalists or bio, biologists, right? right? People, the people who, uh, who push innovation forward, those people naturally gravitate towards a, towards a more powerful position in society. Right. And whether or not they're altruistic about that kind of, uh, you know, uh, spreading of that technology and its utilization on a massive scale, you do, you, the, the proletariat is essentially at the behest of, of a small group of engineers, right? This is what Lenin said uh, with his treatise on the electrification of communism, that you would have a society run by engineers, essentially. Right. And uh, in the city of Petrograd, that's exactly what you had. Massive class stratification, because the engineers essentially had a monopoly on technology. And I'm sure, sure a lot of them had good hearts and wanted to do good things with it. Uh, but the, the, the sad nature of it was is that they were the idea men and everyone else was, were the laborers. And laborers obviously have a have a much more physically strenuous job, and and because of that, a much shorter lifespan. But so, is, you is know, that we'll what, never have that. Is that, what, is that what we see currently with the with the social engineering of the American population, though? I mean, uh, is it is it a similar structure to that? I think that the the structure of American society is is a little bit different, and, and quite frankly, a lot sadder in the sense that uh, you know at, at least. Uh, in the Soviet Union, which again was a horrible tyrannical regime in a lot of respects, but at least, at the very least, the state kept everyone occupied. Correct. Whether they were occupied because they were running from uh, from some, you know, horrible totalitarianism, mm -hmm. they were occupied by war, they were occupied by manufacturing, by state-run jobs. The American people don't have that. What they have is is a is a society that's full of distractions, that that's full of uh, essentially uh, distractions that that breed a lack of empathy as well. Right. So, so we yeah we have a society of of of, of, of essentially unwitting dupes of, of very lazy individuals that that would that would far prefer to to sit at home and watch Sunday night football mm -hmm. uh, than to go out and do anything you know let alone pursue their passions. Correct, and and once again, it's it's a. Um, I, I guess it becomes a mindset for, um, at a certain point where you know I understand the distractions. Let's, I mean, let's face the facts here. A, a lot of Americans, they really do work really hard. I mean, when they when they're at their job, they're working hard and they're doing what they believe is their best. And then when they come home, they just want to relax. I mean, you work a you know, work a fifteen sixteen hour day, you know, huffing packages for UPS. You want to come home and you want to chill out. I understand that. But you also have to be aware of everything that's going on around you and not just in your, in your little sphere of influence. And I think that that's one of the challenges that we're going to address here in a little bit um, for the second half of the show is, um, is how to get people to – and I hate the term wake up, but it is a, um, it, it's the best term we've got. And I guess it would just be um, expanding your sphere of influence would probably be the best way to describe it. And that's what you're really doing. You're taking your sphere of influence. It will typically be you, your family, a couple of your friends because that's all I hear people care about when, they, um, when you try to bring up information to them or when you try to bring up you know, um, uh, wars or, or anything that's happening um, outside of the country. Then um, typically when they shut off, they, they do mention something like that. Well, it's like, well, that's – you know, I'm not really worried about that. That doesn't really interest me. And what they mean is it's just not in their sphere of influence. 
So what we have to do is have to condition people to expand their sphere of influence. And I do think that we're winning here, but um, it, it is one of those things that we're, we're winning at a very, very slow pace. So let's, let's transition into some of the articles, or at least some of the headlines. You and I both read these, and I'll post them on the We Are Not Cattle website, wearenotcattle.net, under the show links for podcast number 54. Once this is all done, so you guys can go there. And I'll also put the links for some of the interviews that um, Josh and I are going to talk about. I'm actually going to I'm going to um, pop quiz him here in a little bit. So I'm about to railroad him, evidently. But uh, anyway, it's um it's a Gallup poll, and it says this is from Breitbart that two thirds of the federal government two thirds believe that the federal government is too big and too powerful. And Josh, what really shocked me about this article is that these numbers have basically remained the same since 19, or since 2011. And especially on the, um, I guess what we would consider the progressive side, um, they've remained the same as well. But it's really the the quote unquote, what they call the the quote unquote Tea Party, um, which what I would consider most of these guys Reaganites, uh, not real true Tea Partiers like the Ron Paul. I, I consider Ron Paul a Tea Partier, um, but um, it says that their satisfaction of independents and um, and other and other Republicans has gone down 10% from 2004. So we're seeing the slow movement and the slow manipulation of this. But what does this really mean in the grand scheme of things? Does this really mean that um, that we're not um, that we're really not making a lot of progress? I mean, what do you, what do you think? Let's let's jump into um, your story of, about traveling because that um, that actually had you fired up and and I always like hearing good stories because it it gets me fired up that we're we're really doing the right thing and and we're starting these dialogues and we're pushing back on the on the corporatized media to understand that there are there are bigger debates that need to happen and they need to happen now because and I think that the establishment's even seeing that they're losing a grip on everything and that this is not going to be able to be sustained for for 5 or 10 or even 15 years I think we're we're um, we're running up against it here so Talk briefly about your experience um, traveling, and um, and then we'll get into um, what we wanted to talk about before, and that's um, and how to get people to expand their sphere of influence. Yeah, well, I guess uh, I can put off my uh, comments on that Breitbart article. Just yeah, no, 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 no. Go ahead and comment on that, and then after you're done, you can. Um, I, I didn't mean to to bogart the mic and cut you off, but after you're done with that, just go ahead and um, and transition into your um, your travel experience and the story that you shared with me because it was. Um, it was, from my perspective at least, it was um, it was encouraging. Well, absolutely. Um, you know, on the topic of that Breitbart article, uh, unfortunately, you know, as much as I would like to say that the Internet has had this decentralizing effect on, on political opinion in America and across the world, and I think that that's certainly the case, I'm not entirely sure uh, what that, uh, that specific poll is, is kind of citing. Uh, I, I think that by and large, the American people, and I hate to rag on them so much, but, you know, you, it's, like a, it's like a child that's lost its way. Sometimes you got to kind of give it a little bit of tough love and, and set it on its course properly. Uh, the, the, the American people don't know what the hell they, they believe anymore. Uh, they, they might know that they're a little bit uncomfortable with wars of imperialistic wars of aggression. They might know that Obamacare is, is, is uh, going to uh, change health health insurance in this country and, and, and really, you know, bleed their pockets dry, especially for a lot of small business owners. But I think that those complaints are, are, are very vague and nonspecific. And, and in, in the case of specificity, like, uh, like the, the outrage that we see over, over the uh, Unaffordable Care Act, um, 
it's these, these same people that are complaining about these kind of things really have not only uh, zero substantive solutions, but are also not actively seeking answers for themselves uh, in the sense that you, you talk to so many mainstream uh, Republicans um, and, and Democrats, and, and their, ideal, their ideals are still just as muddied as they were 10 years ago. Although, I guess this next story might refute uh, my, my previous cynical comment a little bit. Um, but that's, I, that's, a, that's a very, very, it's a very fair statement to make, and, and what, what we really need are not only solutions, but we need um, implementation projects. We need projects on how to implement these things in order to move the ball forward. And I think that what we're going to start seeing is that as people understand and discover liberty again, and as people understand and discover individual, um, you know, individual rights and, 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 and not infringing on civil rights of, of anyone, and as soon as people realize that as soon as I can tell my neighbor what kind of car he has or as soon as I can you know, use the weapon of the state against my neighbor, then, um, then you're actually using the weapon of the state against yourself. You're actually taking away your own freedoms. So as I think that as soon as those, you know, those points get hammered home, the non-aggression principle and things like that, that um, and we need to open up dialogue to people that are on the um, on the left and and on the um, extreme left and and get their opinions and get their thoughts and and have a rational debate with them, but because what you're going to find is that you're going to share a lot more in common than you're than you're going to have differences and what the typical philosophical differences are going to be is what we want the end goal to be. Well, here's the problem: we're so far from the end goal on either side then it really doesn't matter what you believe the end goal is. We need to start trending one way, and that is to decentralize this government, number one. Number two, to really remove the oligarchs and remove their levers of power before they absolutely take us into another war again. Because, I mean, are, are we really that far apart? I believe that libertarians and anarcho-capitalists and voluntarists and, and even Republicans, mainline Republicans to some extent, don't want to go see another war. And I think we saw that pushback with Syria. And so we need to capitalize on that and say, hey, listen, you know, we're, we're all on this little continent together. We all have to live under these same imaginary lines drawn by politicians. So let's start thinking of really rational ways to get this thing back on track. And, you know, let's not debate on what we want the end goal to be. Let's start addressing the problems that we have. And then as soon as we can start addressing the problems and turn the actual the levers of power around, then we can start the debate on what we want the end product to be. I mean, how, what do you think of that? No, I, I agree 100 percent, 100 percent with absolutely everything that you just said. And not only do we need to, uh, to kind of shift those levers of power, but, but utilize them to our advantage when, when it's possible. For example, I think uh, what's going on uh, with this Utah NSA da data center at offnow.org, uh, where they're essentially trying to shut off the water spigot to cool this, this mass, these massive supercomputers that are violating your Fourth Amendment rights, I think that's an excellent example of where you can use the levers of power to your advantage while not a actually not even tacitly kind of accepting the system, simply using it to your advantage. I think that the largest problem we have right now, not just as a, as a movement of, of anarcho-capitalists or voluntarists or libertarians or, or communists or anything like that, as a movement of, of people, of, of populists, in the true sense of the word populism, you know, the polis. Sure. Uh, what we have is, is a problem of implementation. Yep. We have so many cookie-cutter kind of responses to, to this 
to the implementation of this stuff. For example, I think it's wonderful that, that organic uh, and non-GMO food sales are, you know, are skyrocketing right now. Right. I think that it's great. We're that actually running low on supply. That was an article that came out a couple of days ago. Yeah, so that, yeah. I think that's a really good thing because now that's going to shift the corporatized the corporatized, you know, basically Soviet model, which we have now of corporatization of farming, that's going to shift away from those. And what's going to happen is you're going to yield to, you know, more smaller mom and pops, or even you might be able to leverage the powers of corporate power, which I absolutely hate this idea, but it might might be what ends up being done and utilizing the corporate power in order to produce more um, more non-GMO foods, which would which would be great because that would help bankrupt the oligarchy because they're the people that own the contracts for this GMO stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know uh, how how in support of that idea I am simply well, I, because I, I listen, I don't support it either. But you know, it's it's um, we're running up against once, once again we're running up against the clock here, and we got to start we got to start maybe making some deals with the the corporatocracy and say, okay, listen, here here's the deal. You guys start producing more of this, we'll at least buy this product, and then once the corporatocracy sees how much money they can make on that, and and you know with the you know by using the laws of capitalism, you know having the small local farmer being able to compete on a local level as long as they don't overstep their bounds, which they always do, and I think that's where you're going with this. If we can keep them in check and actually have them produce goods that people want. Then everybody wins, and then it's a and then it's a successful shift away from GMO crops. I I, I certainly uh, see see where you could be going with that. Uh, I I would care uh, far more to make them obsolete and, Absolutely. and with I, localism. I would, and that, but that's really what I'm getting back to with with this idea of implementation. Okay. While it is wonderful that that Americans are becoming a little bit more health conscious than they were in the past, and they're starting to be concerned about some of these issues. Uh, there's still it's a lazy form of implementation, right? You're still going to a corporatized supermarket that where your food is shipped from halfway across the country. In many cases, isn't even grown in this country. Not that you know uh, global commerce is a bad thing by any stretch of the imagination, but you're you're still eating food that is completely dependent on a centralized body of authority that's dependent on the petrodollar. There are a lot of people now that are quote unquote woken up. That know about this information, but how many of them are actually growing their own food? And that's how many what of I them say, are you That's why I say that energy? if you utilize the power of the corporatocracy and leverage that out until people actually have the resources to do that, because I think what what a lot of the problem is is that is that the the establishment has done such a great job of making us all dependent on the system and the way that the system works. As soon as we get people to realize that these things are going to benefit them, not only health-wise, but um, in their conscious mind and in, in the way they interact with other people, and it will, you know, will change their, their outlook on life, then I think that we can start moving to the smaller agrarian communities and doing these types of things with co-ops and stuff like that. But I just don't think that the American public is ready for that, and I am I'm once again to defend – my argument, I think that we're up against the I think we're up against the clock and the fact that we're gonna have to make some compromises from a from not only a um an anarcho capitalist standpoint or a volunteerist standpoint like myself, that you're gonna have to make some compromises with the state or with the actual corporatocracy in order to get things done, in order to move into a progressive system. I hate to use that word, that was really bad, but move into a system where we can be a little bit more self-sustaining and, and have um, localized commerce. It's kind of like, I guess, Adam Kokesh's ideal of of defunding the federal government and, and using a, a peaceful disillusion of it, because I guess I'm aligning with the, his train of thought is the 
the only way I see this ending is with um, a shutoff of one of two ways, and that will be a disaster for humanity. I would like to mitigate the disaster, and if we gotta if we gotta fall into a, a if we gotta fall into a cart of pillows rather than a cart of you know you know rose thorns, then I would rather do a cart of pillows. I I completely understand what you're saying, but I guess I, I and I also completely agree with with your statement that we are running up against uh, some very very harsh deadlines. Uh, that being said, uh, I don't think that the the utilization of corporate or, or state power, even from a you know profit motive standpoint, at this phase in the game, is is pragmatic or even possible. In, in the sense that you know once once America loses its status as a world reserve currency, once our military, I say our, but once the military might of the state of America. Gosh, that was nice. You got the America jersey on. Good job. Oh, God. I, yeah, I, I forget. It's, it's like stitched into my skin, and I, every time I say that, I, I start picking at it again. But, but All right, man. You know, Biological Android. You're programmable. Bernays said that. You're good. Everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, not until they get the microchip in me, but hey, I carry one around in my pocket all the time, just like most Americans, so I guess they've already got me a little bit. Here's but, scary. Those things don't track you. <laughs> but but really, getting getting back to this point, I, I do absolutely think that they're, they're really, this, this system is coming to, to a violent end, whether, whether the American people like it or not. Uh, and and I, I truly believe that the the only way to to mitigate this kind of disaster, as you said, is is to vehemently uh, support localism, mm-hmm. uh, and and aggressively support localism in in that in that you need to start shopping at your local farmer farmers market. You know, you need to you you need to be looking at uh, real alternative energies. You need to be looking at at, at being able to to grow your own food and, and learn bushcraft skills. You know. How to start a fire? Maybe maybe install a wood wood burning stove in your house because uh, because ah the EPA will come shut that down, dude. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but 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 really, what what I'm getting at is that there there is only one solution, and it is your non your complete and utter non-compliance with the system. Right. And it, it's it, it's a little bit difficult right now, especially uh, in the sense that most Americans are not only broke, but they don't have a support network locally for this kind of stuff. What I'm they saying the is that they once... Don't, they, don't once have the, they don't have the tools, the knowledge, skills. They don't have the skill set. They don't have a lot of things, and that's why I... And, it's, and you read my personality profile, so you understand why I'm doing this, but this is you know, <laughs> also... Um, this is, once again, me playing devil's advocate. If anybody wants to understand my personality profile, just... Oh, my God. So, anyway, but I, I just think that this... That, the the idea of America, and I say that in, in in air quotes, the idea of America is so entrenched and so classically conditioned into um, I would say a large part of the population, they can't really understand why you would tell them things like that. That's what I'm saying is that they won't be able to understand why don't I need to shop at Target? Why can't I go to the big box store? Why can't I go to Kroger to get my avocados from Mexico? Why can't I do these things? It's so easy. You know, and, and I think that the laziness of Americans will will actually either be it'll either be our downfall or it can be utilized as a as a great tool. And what I'm trying to do is is give people ideas in order to leverage the I hate to say the laziness, but let's just call it what it is, um, the laziness of the American public into things that will actually benefit them. Now, that sounds like a, sounds like a state-controlled ideological move, but then again, 
we're running out of we're running out of traction here and and I understand that if everybody thought the same way that we did that everybody would move to localized communities we would probably all trade in our own currency and we would never pay any taxes to the private federal reserve and we would probably defund all the wars and 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 everything would would have a big a paradigm shift but I just don't see that that happening physically because it moves them so far out of the status quo which actually brings us into our next segment how do we get people out of the status quo? And now I'd like for you to um, retort to my comment if you got any rebuttals and also um, to get into what happened to you on your trip. Sure thing. Well, as the, as the consummate pragmatist, I do have to say that I think that in, in a way uh, the, the loss of the, the dollar status as the global reserve currency is going to be a blessing in disguise in the sense that, uh, you know, for all of our activism and work that we do spreading the word, uh, nothing will inform the American people about the value of localism and the value of knowing your neighbor and producing your own goods and services than a, a complete and total dissolution of the system as it stands now. So you, Americans are, Americans you're, you're, are going you're to learn... You're basically advocating for the dropping them into a bed of thorns, then. Absolutely. Uh, the American no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just, trying to, just trying to clarify. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. But the, the American people are going to learn these skills, but they're going to learn them in a very, very difficult manner, and, uh, you know, some of our fellow countrymen might not make it through that process, but, you know, quite frankly, uh, that's their own damn fault. Um, we, we are conditioned, but we live in an age where uh, all of the world's information is at, your, is at our fingertips. So, you know, if, if, you, if you're going to be resistant to this information uh, because you don't want to hear about it or it makes you afraid or, uh, or you're just not interested, then that's at your own detriment. And am I going to feel a little bit sorry for some of those people? Yeah, some of them are going to be my friends and family. Everyone listening to this is going to have friends and family who are resistant to this information. You know, you know who they are out there listening. You know exactly who they are. And they're going to have a real rough time. And hopefully there will be enough people like, like you and me that, that will be able to kind of provide to these people and show them, show them the light. But, you know, more and more Americans are kind of seeing that light. And, uh, you know, I, I had a recent experience going through TSA uh, when I fly, and I rarely fly, but, but I always opt out. Um, so you go through an additional screening process with the pat down and the rubbing of the hands on the up your thigh, and I'm very uncomfortable with that. Um, but my luggage was flagged uh, <laughs> as a as a potential threat. Um, and all because you're wearing a skinny tie and a cardigan, I just got to lay it on you. <laughs> Absolutely. This I mean, cat looks like an intellectual. We better get him. That's, that's like Paris persona non grata right there. Um, but, but all of my luggage was chemically swabbed. Um, my groin area was chemically swabbed. Uh, the, the entire process took about 40 minutes. Uh, and this is all because I resisted the uh, uh, Michael Chertoff cancer scanner. Um, but, but as I was on the plane, uh, we, and this speaks more to the distractions, now on all Delta flights there are televisions in the back of, um, of, of each uh, uh, headrest. So you can watch TV as, as you're flying. And, and the guy next to me um, was watching CNBC, and I made some passing comments about, uh, you know, you shouldn't trust them for anything. Uh, because, and I kind of informed him that 80% of their, of their, of their trade advice on, on average per year loses money. And, uh, you know, he, he informed me that he, he didn't watch very often. And, you know, we kind of got talking, and by the end of this, this three-and-a-half-hour flight, We'd gotten into all sorts of things. We talked about uh, Gaddafi and, 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 and the, the situation with, with wanting to, to price oil in gold. We talked about Saddam Hussein. We talked about September the 11th. He expressed uh, his, 
his uh, dissatisfaction with the 9-11 commission report and said it was a now, load how, of... How, just for the audience, how old was this guy? This guy was in his mid-60s, uh, so he was a much older gentleman, and, and he, he had brought up all this stuff, you know, not... It wasn't a situation where I was informing him about it, although we kind of informed each other about some things, but he, he already had a base of knowledge about this stuff. And he was surprised that I had known about this stuff being so young, whereas I reported, you know, I'm more surprised that, that you know being so old. Yeah, you're wearing a skinny tie and a cardigan. You're a little punk kid with long hair. Come on, what do you know? <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, though. But and, uh, and the lady in front of us, who was also in her mid-60s, chimed in because uh, the, the word Bilderberg was mentioned, and, and, and she expressed her dissatisfaction with the Bilderberg group, and, and the fact that she even knew who they were was encouraging. And it was even more encouraging that Americans are no longer afraid to talk about the false flag event that was 9-11, even on an airplane. Wow. Right? That couldn't have happened in 2004 or 2003 or 2002, you know? But it can happen now because people are starting to see through these lies. It's just a matter of taking them to that next level, to implementing the changes in their lives to make these people obsolete, right? Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, if you, make, you either make them obsolete and, uh, and, and they go away because they realize that they can't fund themselves anymore, or they reveal their true nature and, and, and have to turn on complete and utter uh, tyranny and, and martial law against the people. Uh, so either way, you win, right? In the sense that you, uh, you either eliminate the state and make them obsolete, or you make them show their true nature, and then you have uh, you know, this, this kind of uh, moral, uh, moral high ground that, that you can stand on. Uh, and hopefully you would, you would get, you know, a, a massive, massive swaths of, of support from, from other places in the world if that were the case, although I can't, <laughs> I, I wouldn't blame uh, a lot of the world if they didn't uh, exactly come to our aid in, in, that, in that time of need. Oh, yeah, that would, that's, that's one of the things that concerns me the most. It's like, it is that when I, when I start, you know, engaging with people, they're like, oh, somebody would come to help us. I'm like, Really? Really, somebody's gonna come help us. Uh, don't think you've been, have you ever been out of this country? Yeah, we don't have the greatest reputation. So anyway, um, tabling that was really really great, man. It's always good to hear. I, I love hearing uplifting stuff like that because it can get doom and gloom, especially if you listen to some talk show hosts out there that like to fearmonger and and talk about doom and gloom coming around every corner and that um, you know the terrorists are gonna get you and that. You know the um, the elite are going to blow up um, you know cities with nukes and stuff like that, which is another realm of possibility. But then again, why would you ever live in fear of something like that? If it happens in your city, you're vaporized. So get over it. Just start controlling things that you can control. So um, we do have a little bit of time left, and I do want to get into this. So. Josh, I wrote down some notes on, on how to get people to quote-unquote wake up, and I don't think that I like that term, but we're just going to roll with that. So here, here are some of my thoughts, and I want you to expand on that. Um, number one is get them to ask questions. Now, I think that one of the things that we run into in the truth movement um, is um, we, we typically like to get on our soapbox and preach. Because we have all this information, we have all this knowledge, and what we, um, what we call in the sales industry, you typically like to show up and throw up. You like to show the person how much information you have, knowledge you have, but then what that does is it basically shuts them off. So get the person to ask questions. Would you agree that that's a, that's a pretty fair way to start a dialogue? Oh, absolutely, and I think asking questions to them yourself Correct. Is, uh, you know, using that, the Socratic method 
is, is a great way to kind of start that dialogue, right? And you know, I, meant to, I meant them get them to ask questions once you um, get them to basically – I meant get them to ask questions to themselves is what I meant. Um, and I probably should have written that. But keep, keep going. Continue. Yeah, absolutely. Because what this ultimately does is it forces them to justify their beliefs. And at that point, you know, if, 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 these, if these people implement logical fallacies or they repeat historical memes that aren't true, at that point you can use your superior, superior not intellect, but your superior experience and your superior knowledge at that point to inform them that there are alternative views to a lot of these historical events. There are a lot of alternative views to, to, to the political calamity that we're experiencing now. And at that point, you know, maybe give them a, a, a piece of media that, that could uh, kind of enlighten them on that topic. But I do think that the, the Socratic form of dialogue, you know, getting people to, to kind of question their own beliefs, because ultimately, and this is something that, that you stated in, in email to me earlier today, which I think is, is such a great point, is that, you know, if they can't justify their beliefs uh, to a certain extent, then what, the, what they'll do uh, is, is become emotive and become completely and utterly irrational, uh, at which point, you know, you can either point that out to them very kindly and calmly, uh, you know, and let them know that, that they're uh, kind of being whipped up into a fervor by simple questions, or uh, you, can, you can realize that that's not a person whose mind is open enough or developed enough at this point to, uh, to kind of accept some of these information or even ask these questions too. And it's a good way of feeling out, I think, uh, you know, who is worth your time and who isn't. Right. And um, the, here, here are my points that I had written down, and, and we can expand on these, and then um, we're kind of running up against it. we got about 10 minutes left. So uh, number one was get them to ask questions and basically get them to question their own beliefs. Number two was um, it's better to lead than to dictate, and that really does speak to what Josh says. Uh, number three, um, offer objective opinions and support your argument with facts. Uh, number four, remain emotionally balanced. This is very key. Remain emotionally balanced, and if they lose their, um, if they lose their, or they will lose their cool or their emotional clarity, which means that they will probably fly off the handle. And you just need to, at this point, remain emotionally balanced, and just, and just say, listen, I, I understand what you're going through, and always sympathize with them. It's kind of like the old sales tactic. You, you sympathize, you inform, and then you close on, on what you're trying to get across. So you're basically, and good gosh, I sound like I'm giving a sales class on here, but we really do have to sell this information because they've been sold a bucket of lies for 15,000 hours. So you have to decommission that processing unit and explain to them, you know, listen, I understand that, um, that this is a very difficult conversation for you to have, and obviously I see you're getting emotional about it. But here, here is what I'm offering to you. I'm offering documented proof. If you want to take it, that's fine. But if you want to, if you want to continue to believe what you believe, which has been proven factually inaccurate, then I guess you're going to have to make the decision of whether you want to be accurate or whether you want to be correct. Because being accurate and being correct are two totally different things. It's like, it's like uh, facts and truth. Truth is self-evident. That means it's truth is, is inherently what you believe that the facts are. Now, the facts never change. The facts are what they are, and the facts always yield to what the correct outcome is. Truth is what you believe in your head to be factually accurate, even if you're supported by logical fallacies. So, Josh, um, what would you say to what I just said right there? 
Well, I, I certainly think that that's absolutely the case, you know, and uh, and this this idea of you know, kind of recontextual, or maybe recontextualizing is the wrong wrong word. Dude, we make up words on here all the time. That's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, that is a real word, but I think to make one up, uh, decontextualization of uh, of a lot of this information is is so important. You know. Okay, uh, so, what would your working definition of decontextualization be? Well, I would say that history is is written by the victors, right? Overwhelmingly so which means that its context is, is put in place by, in large part throughout human history, imperialists uh, and, and governments with a lot of force and a lot of guns and a lot of violence. Sure. So if these people are the ones writing your history, you've got to inform people that there are, are alternative views, and you have to kind of decontextualize the contextualization that they've placed uh, within the public and, and the, the minds of the public for so many years, uh, right? You know, it's... The, the war on terrorism is, a, is an excellent example, right? If, if, if your, you know, kind of understanding of, of, of terrorism starts with the Iran hostage crisis, which is when it starts for the vast majority of people in the Western world, then you ignore uh, a, a large segment of, of Western imperialism attempting to conquer countries like Iran sure. uh, over, over many, many decades, or even going back as far as, you know, the, the foundation of, of the House of Saud uh, with the Standard Oil cadre and uh, Prince Abdulaziz, you know, which is a, a, essentially just a, a fake royal family that was erected by the Rockefellers for, for right. their own purposes. You know, this goes back a long ways, and most people don't understand that. So that's what I, I guess I mean by the, the decontextualization of history. Right, and uh, Tragedy and Hope, everybody. It's free online on my website. Please read it. Please, pretty please, with sugar on top. And you don't have to read all of it. Just read the um, read the subsections that interest you. He breaks it down very succinctly. It's not like it's not a big bog you down book. It's um it's pretty. Would you say, Josh? It's pretty succinct. I mean, it's it's a couple of paragraphs about short periods of time in history, but it really does hit the high points and gives you a a really good overall view of what happened and how it happened, rather than this idea of history that we're taught in school that everything is by accident and just two countries just happened to go to war with each other because one guy got assassinated. I mean, give me a break. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very dense book. It's a very long book. But if you're interested in this information, even in the slightest, then I think it'll be a real page turner for you. Absolutely, and you don't have to read it all in one fell swoop. I mean, and also... No, of course not. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'll, um, read aloud audio player. I highly recommend it. It is a free download if you have Android, and I'm sure it's down on iTunes as well. And utilize that in tandem with the PDF that you can find on my website. Also, the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross is there as well. So you can actually sit there and listen to the book like a podcast as you're driving down the road, and it is absolutely fantastic. Um, the the tempo is a little bit um, schizophrenic sometimes, but you really do get the overall point. Okay, last little portion of the show, Josh, I want to bring this up to you. Um, I'm going to hit you with a, a quote, and then I want you to elaborate with this because this is what we're going to close with. And this is also going to be on the link for the, uh, for the show notes. Once again, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, sharing this information with your friends, family, people that you know, people you like. Um, I highly recommend going back to my last show if you want to understand uh, terrorism and where the Muslim Brotherhood came from. I gave a couple of good source articles. I actually read too much of them, I was told. But, um, 
you know, anyway, this information needs to get out. People need to understand um, the history of terrorism, where these uh, where these groups come from. Also, I did a a 30 minute segment on the history of marijuana and and how that became illegal, and um, we're in a ever you know, I guess an ever-changing fight for um, trying to legalize a, a plant that was so helpful to human beings for, for close to the better part of 7,000 years. So um, here is the clip for Josh Wiley, and then I will get his thoughts on the backside, and we will end on this. So enjoy, everybody. What would you like to say on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Tough to swallow. Hello? Yeah. Listening? I am listening. Are you paying attention? You mean me or them out there? Them out there. Gotcha. You know? You know? Question is, can we wake up? You know, we're asleep. How many... What's the percentage that... It's even aware of what's going on. It's trivial. Let me tell you something. Time to wake up. It's time to take off the, the, the coverings and take off the, throw away the, uh, the, the distortions and see, understand, Again, get the blinders off your eyes. Get the earmuffs off your ears so that you're understanding exactly what's going on and where you're headed. Because if you don't do that, you're going to be taken in and suddenly you're going to be a slave. All right, Josh Wiley, who was that? Oh, my goodness. That was uh, Major General Albert Stubblebind uh, being interviewed by Jan Irvin of Gnostic Media. Correct. Oh, Josh passes the test. What is the <laughs> significance of General, um, General Burt? Uh, so General Burt was, uh, I believe, the, involved with, I, I don't think he was the head of, or, or was he the head of? He was uh, the commanding, commanding General of the United States Army Intelligence and Security Command, NSCOM. Yes, uh, yeah, our Army Psychological Warfare, essentially. Yes, correct. Uh, and and Bert Stubblebine worked with a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, seemingly uh, strange and esoteric kind of ideas, like, um, uh, like oh, oh, geez, what's it called? Uh, remote viewing. Yep. Uh, the th- things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- things like this. And the Cohen brothers made a, a very slick propaganda movie about him called Men Who Stare at Goats, uh, and and kind of made him out to be this eccentric sort of fool. Um, but uh, obviously what he's saying is tremendously important because he realized that for years, even at, at his high position within uh, such a supposedly esteemed institution, uh, he was being duped. He was being used. Uh, and he was being used by uh, people who, uh, who are, are commonly thought of, even within this, this kind of nexus of, of belief, like people like you, you and myself, uh, of someone like Aldous Huxley, who's viewed as a hero. Right, mm-hmm. as someone who, uh, who you know, for all intents and purposes, uh, is an insider. Yep. Not not only involved with MK Ultra, but has a long-standing tie with uh, with the Huxley or the Huxley family has long-standing ties with the Darwins yep. and the Wedgwoods. Uh, so this this kind of eugenic uh, interbreeding with with the Huxley family 
goes back at least a century from, from what you know we, we can understand about it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I, th I think that's a really important interview, and I think uh, it's another great example of uh, decontextualizing history. There it is. So that's it for the show, everybody. Thank you so much to Josh Wiley for joining me. Uh, catch the Journalistic Revolution on Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. Uh, catch my show here Tuesday and Thursday nights, 9 until 10 p.m. Um, one day next week, I believe it's going to be Thursday, I'm going to interview the gentleman from the Hyperbaric Chamber. My, um, my point uh, to go into the Hyperbaric Chamber will be on um, Monday at 4 o'clock. I will probably post a video documenting my experience afterwards and uh, just giving like a little recap of what I have experienced, what um, what went through my head. And um, if you have anybody that suffers from these few ailments, um, please have them tune in because we might be able to give them hope where they probably have lost hope from the MD Medicine Group. Um, if you have anybody with a symptoms of autism, um, anybody that has had stroke, um, anybody that suffers from um, spinal um, spinal difficulties, um, paralysis for for some portions, um, please have them tune in because the information that we're going to data dump on you during that um, during that show and, and it'll probably be about an hour, maybe an hour and a half show interview. Um, the work that they're doing and the documented cases that they've had reversing some of the effects of some of these really crippling uh, ailments. And Josh, I sent you the. Um, I sent you the um, the slides. Did you get those uh, that I sent to you in a text message? I actually uh, didn't see them uh, because of my uh, my the, the encrypted nature of my text uh, text app. Okay. So well, you I'll, might have to email I'll those email, to me. I will email them to you tonight. But what it does, and I'm going to put those up on the show on the show notes, so they'll kind of be flashing as the interview goes along. But it's actually out of mainline um, mainline medical textbooks that um, shows all the different um, the different diseases that used to be treated with hyperbaric medicine that are now treated with, of course, prescription narcotics and other prescription agents um, brought to you by Merck and Bayer and all those other companies that love you so very much. So that's it for the show, everybody. Look for that interview on Thursday. I will be back here on Tuesday night, 9 o'clock. Um, Josh and I are actually going to be collaborating um, in the future on a couple of other projects, so stay tuned for that. We haven't got the details um, worked out, but um, I think it's going to be all good stuff. And uh, as we always say, get a friend, get informed, and get involved, people. That it, The last word is the most important. Do something. Once again, whether it's one little piece of activism every month, you just go out and hold a sign for an hour on a Friday afternoon. Do something. It'll change your life. It'll change the way that you feel. And it'll also astonish you at how many people will notice what you're doing and will come over and strike up conversations with you because they're too afraid to do it or that they believe the same things that you do and they just feel like they're all alone. We're not all alone out there. We are the majority. Humanity is rising. And once again, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Share the podcast with people you know, people you like. Um, we are not cattle.net. Follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube channel, like my own Facebook, and um, let's start changing the world. Thanks again to Josh Wiley. Take care, everybody. Oh, you deserve it. Don't